If you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn to Mark chapter 1. If you're new to the Bible, if you open it up, just let it fall open in the middle, you'll probably hit Psalms. And then if you hang a right, uh, about 25 books or so, you'll run into the New Testament. That's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Those are called Gospels. Uh, those four Gospels are four different authors writing about the life and ministry and death and resurrection of Jesus. And we call those the Gospels. The four Gospels are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And today uh, we're considering Mark chapter 1, verses 12 through 20. So I invite you to follow along with me as I read. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in the boat, mending their nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Father, we thank you for the reading of your word. We acknowledge that, that all of us are in a different place. For some of us, this is the first scripture that we have read or heard in a week. For others, we have daily saturated our lives with the word. And for others, uh, we are still in this process of struggling to make daily Bible reading a real habit. So no matter where we are in the process of coming to you for your word, which you say sustains us. Uh, we pray that we would each understand that your word is food to us. We thank you that it is a reliable guide for faith and practice in our life. We pray that you would take your word, that you would use it today to draw us closer to you, to convict us, to strengthen us, to teach us, and to help us to focus our heart and our love on you. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. When I was in my uh, early 20s, I was in Bible school. I had been a believer for maybe four or five years. And in the process of that, I f had experienced a great deal of victory and growth and a great deal of um, establishment in the faith. The Lord, I felt like, had given me a good foundation to understand how to walk with Him and how to grow with Him. Uh, but something happened around three or uh, so years in, and I just began to stagnate in my walk with God. Have you ever experienced that? Have you ever walked with God and had uh, sort of this mountaintop experience where you feel like you're on fire and you can't read enough Scripture and you can't walk with the Lord enough and you can't pray enough or fast enough or give enough or serve enough and you buy all the journals and the highlighters and, and you buy that, you know, that big leather cover with all the... the pockets in it and it's got all the highlighters and and your bible looks like somebody just dropped paint on it right you have all these notes in there and then then something happens over a period of time and and your heart begins to to cool off in a sense 
Maybe it's just me, but I, I found myself in these patterns where I would, where I would be uh, so passionate, so hot-hearted for the Lord, and then I would struggle in my flesh, and I would just sort of weave back and forth, and, and, and the highs would be really high, but the lows would be really low. And, and eventually, though, that sort of roller coaster would begin to level out, and, and you begin to find a steady, faithful walk. But, but sometimes during those lows, I would see the true nature of my character and how far I had to go. And it was humbling and it was difficult. And after long periods of stagnation and struggle and backsliding, I would sort of pick a day and go spend a few hours in a prayer chapel. We had a prayer chapel on campus and and I would just kind of lay out before the Lord and ask him to forgive me. And I would confess all these sins and make all these relationships right and, and recommit. If you've ever read the book of Judges, right, they, they get themselves in a huge amount of trouble and then they call on the Lord and He raises up a deliverer and He delivers them and then they experience the goodness and grace of God for a while and then they get stagnant and then they backslide and then they fall and then they get themselves in a lot of trouble and then they call out to the Lord and then He sends a deliverer and then the whole process repeats. The book of Judges has been called Cycles and, and I have mimicked those cycles in my own life. Well, it was on the backside of one of those cycles that I just felt broken. I felt empty. I felt ill-equipped, unable to overcome bad choices and bad character in this sort of early phase in my ministry. And as I was meditating on Scripture in Matthew chapter 4, verse 23 through Matthew 5, 2, I began to meditate on this particular passage. And what I saw in this passage was a process that Jesus initiated there uh, in the beginning of his ministry. He called disciples, he called people next to him, um, but he also had these enormous crowds. You know, Jesus had a big ministry to crowds. Crowds thronged to him. And in that particular passage of Matthew 4.23, it says that people from the Decapolis, people from uh, the region of Syria, from all over um, the southern parts of Israel, I basically mapped it out in my sort of Bible map at the back, and I looked at the area, and it was this enormous rectangle of area that people were coming to Jesus. Not by car or train, right? By horse or donkey or uh, walking. What would have amounted to two weeks on foot just to see and hear and experience Jesus. And it says he healed them and he taught them and he was uh, experiencing this enormous crowd ministry. But the turning point happened for me when I realized that some point in that process where all these crowds were coming to him, it says he took his disciples higher up on a mountain, and he began to teach them this great long block of teaching that we call the Sermon on the Mount. And if you think about the crowds who were with him, they were invalids and they were uh, people who were broken and they were people who were struggling and there were thousands upon thousands. We know there's many as 15,000 gathered and he fed them at one time. And so it's, it's not um, out of the ordinary for us to assume that there are thousands and thousands of people that Jesus now climbs higher on a mountain with a smaller group of people and he begins to invest in them. And the Lord just tipped this off to me in that way that, uh, that there was a need in my life for discipleship, for an older godly man 
to take me uh, kind of under his wing and to model for me what it means to walk with God, what it means to read scripture, what it means to memorize, what it means to meditate on the word, what does it mean to, to share the gospel, what does it mean for me to get involved and make better character choices, how do I battle against flesh and against sin and temptation. And in and, and all these ways, I found a real need in my life for somebody who was experienced in the faith, who had walked the road I'm now walking as a four-year-old believer, uh, who's eager to serve the Lord, but also is tripped up. And I don't know if you've ever felt that aching emptiness or the lack of resources within you that you just don't know where to go or how to overcome temptation or how to battle the flesh or how to break the back of those cycles, right? Those extreme highs and those extreme lows. And for me, the Lord showed me that it was this call to discipleship. This call to discipleship. This call to come and follow Him. This call to come and die. And we see this in this passage of Scripture. And so I want to treat uh, verses 16 through 20 um, first, and then we're going to reverse order the rest of this passage. But I want you to see in here the ministry pattern of Jesus in touching many, That's the crowds in ministering to some. Think of the Samaritan woman in John four. Think of Nicodemus in John three. Think of Zacchaeus. Think of these sort of incidents where Jesus has deep impact in a person's life for a short amount of time. But then I want you to recognize that the bulk of his time was spent investing in a handful of people that he would eventually commission at the end of three years, his closest friends that he had invested all of his life into, that he would release to go and spread the gospel. And so let's take a look at this process of disciple making. In verse 16, it says, Passing along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea. Now, let's just figure out the timeline here. Because early we remember that Andrew and John, right? In the book of John, it's recorded that after Jesus was baptized... Um, John the Baptist said, hey, look, there's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And John and Andrew said, hey, can we come and spend some time with you? And Jesus said, yeah, come on, let's spend some time together. And they spent the day with him. And Andrew went and found Peter. And he said, look, we found the Messiah. And Peter came to him and then he called um, the other disciples around him. And there was this initial period where they were getting to know him. We know in this timeline, back at verse 14, that John was arrested. It probably took... Uh, six months or so after Jesus' baptism for John to be arrested. And so in Mark's gospel, between verse uh, 14, when John is arrested, until Jesus comes up and calls these disciples, it could have been a year. It could have been more than a year. He spent time with them. He knew them. He had already shifted his ministry base from Nazareth to Capernaum. He'd already begun ministry on the Sea of Galilee. But he was familiar to these guys. They had spent time with him. We know that from John's gospel. So when he sees them in verse 16, this isn't an introduction. They're not saying uh, getting to know Jesus for the first time. When Jesus calls out to them, he's already said, follow me. And they've already spent time with him. But this is different. This is different. In verse 17, Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And listen to their response. Immediately, they left their nets and followed him. Now, let's just take a pause here and look at immediately because 
Mark loves the word immediately. Uh, It's used 71 times in the New Testament. Mark uses it 50% of those times. Mark often has the, um, it's called the fast-paced gospel, and it's written to the Roman audience. And you'll see in Mark not long blocks of teaching like you find in Matthew, which is written primarily to a Jewish audience. You'll see in the book of Mark, it's just fast-paced. In this passage alone, you saw immediately three times. This is just the first chapter, and it's over ten times in this uh, first few paragraphs. And you, you think, what's the point of immediately? Is Mark kind of ADHD? Is he, is he writing um, just sort of like with squirrel kind of, uh, you know, lack of ability to focus? Or why is everything happening so quickly and so urgently and so immediately all the time? Um, so you're going to see this here, but it's really kind of a, a, a literal literary device um, that would um, really connect with his audience, which is a Roman audience, that they would um, see in this a sense of purpose, and a sense of urgency that Jesus moves decisively, intentionally, under the sovereign direction of the Holy Spirit, He is going. And so when you see immediately, uh, I want you to see purpose behind that. Not necessarily pace. Right? I'm helping coach a bunch of 12-year-old boys in baseball. And I found myself thinking about the word immediately during four practices this week as you know, you tell somebody to go to the outfield and it's just sort of, uh, I'm walking to the dugout and I'm going to walk and get my mitt and I'm going to walk and find my hat and then I'll walk out and then I'll walk back. And I just wanted to say, immediately, <laughs> immediately, I want you to go, right? I want you to go fast. Don't think of that in terms of pace, like they're just frantically running around. Think of it in terms of purpose, decisiveness, intentionality. Um, and without delay, okay? So he says immediately, verse 18, Jesus tells these disciples, come and follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And it says immediately they left their nets and they followed him. Going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in the boat mending their nets. And immediately he called them and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and they followed him. What do we see in this? Well, we see in this a couple of things. We see in this a thorough life commitment. A thorough life commitment based on who they have come to know Jesus as. They've spent time around Jesus. They had the testimony of John the Baptist, who was the most famous preacher in all of Israel during that time. People were flocking to John the Baptist in the months before Jesus was ever revealed. Do you remember uh, when John the Baptist, um, Roman soldiers were coming to him and he, he was telling them uh, how they should behave and Pharisees and Sadducees and uh, Herodians and all these different people were coming. John the Baptist had an audience with all of Israel and not just with Jewish people, but also with irreligious people. And so Jesus comes in and John the Baptist points to him and says, this one is greater than I. Six months into his ministry, his disciples say, more people are going to Jesus than they are to you. And John says, well, that's great. He must increase and I must decrease. John the Baptist handed off an enormous thriving ministry to Jesus and rightly so. But in the process of that, Jesus was gathering all these crowds and these disciples were around him, but they hadn't fully left everything. They were getting to know him. That's where a lot of people spend their Christian life. Just in sort of a, uh, I like Jesus, 
I want kind of miracles from Jesus. I want him to, to do cool things for me and around me. But I don't know that I'm really ready to make a full life commitment. I'm not really ready to repent and to give everything. These men left a family business, a thriving family business. We know uh, that this particular family that worked together, they had fleets of boats and hired servants. If you think about this area of the Sea of Galilee, it was a trade route from Syria, from Damascus, and from um, Turkey area. All three of those routes would come together and they would pass on the way to Egypt. And this was one of those. And so the Sea of Galilee was like a truck stop on a highway, on a major highway. And these guys were fishing daily, regularly pulling out loads of fish, uh, drying them out and feeding them to these travelers as they went by. This was a thriving, growing family business. And so for these disciples to say, I'm fully in, I'm fully in, I can even imagine them jumping out of the boat and immediately swimming to shore and following Jesus, not just with their lips and not just with their um, uh, occasional service or occasional time, but they, they, they pushed everything behind to follow Jesus with full commitment. That's one thing I want you to see here. I want you to see that there's more to becoming a Christian than just getting to know him at arm's length, at a distance. More than just a church attendance, more than just occasional Bible study, more than just uh, um, fellowshipping with other Christians talking about God, but, but there is a greater commitment. You think about the great uh, book that Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote about the cost of discipleship, right? A call to come and die. A call to give everything for the sake of the gospel. A call to grow. A call to to forsake everything else and to follow Jesus. Too many of us follow Jesus with sort of a half-hearted, occasional commitment that says, when it's convenient, I'll come. Sometimes we approach Him in a way that the rich young ruler or others who encounter Jesus said, let me just first go and bury my dead or let me first go and bury my father or I've just bought a field, I have to try it out. Or, right? There are all these sort of excuses that you see sprinkled throughout the Gospels of people who love Jesus, who wanted to be with Jesus, but they weren't ready to fully bend the knee and submit and yield their life to Him. These disciples left everything and immediately they left everything. And they left everything for a purpose. We see in verse, um, in this call that Jesus gives them, follow me, I will make you become fishers of men. We see a a definition of what it means to be a disciple. A disciple kind of fundamentally has these three parts to it. Follow me, a commitment to give everything and to go into a committed relationship with Jesus where they are walking with him and hearing from him and and taking their orders from him and they're yielded to him. And in the process of doing that, the second part is that he says, I will make you. Follow me, I will make you. There is a transformation that takes place as people wholeheartedly commit to Jesus. There is a life change that happens deep on the inside and works its way out into all your behaviors, all your attitudes. You're able to love your enemies and to forgive those who sin against you. And you're able to minister and to give charitably and generously. And and you're able to serve not just on occasional periods, but, but you're really wholeheartedly following Jesus as he's transforming you in that process. Follow me. I will make you. And then he releases you for purpose. I will make you fishers of men. 
This wasn't new to them. Jeremiah 16, 15, uh, God is calling back through the prophet Jeremiah, people who will go out and become fishers of men and hunters of men who will turn people back from their idols and their ways outside of Israel. They will go outside to the Gentiles and they will evangelize. And this is a call back uh, from that passage in Jeremiah that Jesus says, I will release you for purpose. Right? We know that Jesus said, I have come to seek and save the lost, that he leaves the 99, that he goes, he waits for the prodigal son, that, that the, the woman who lost one coin out of 10 and sweeps the whole house for it. We understand that God is a missionary God. He sent Jesus to seek and save the lost. And then he has commissioned us, as we read last week in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, to go and make disciples. The gospel was never meant to terminate in your life. This is not the end point. The living water of the gospel is supposed to flow through you to those in your neighborhoods and in your workplace and in your family and and in your uh, outer circle of ministry. People should look at your lives and my life and say, uh, there's something unique about you. There's something different in the way in which you love people and the way you, wish you face trials and the way in which uh, you experience um, different grace and provision and, and all the different ways that God is at work in, in your life. There should be this sort of um, evangelistic process by which we are able to say, it's not me that you see, it's the light of Jesus Christ within me. So it's in that process that we see him making disciples. And over the next three years, uh, two and a half years, as he spends time with them, he is equipping them and showing them how to walk with God. He's showing them how to reach uh, people in their sphere of influence. And then he's later commissioning them to go and make disciples and to start churches. And they do that. So we'll talk more about the process of disciple making throughout this. But let's back up to verses 14 through 16. In verses 14 through 16, we see that after John was arrested, Jesus now assumes this Caruso ministry, this proclamation ministry, this preaching ministry. Jesus was a preacher. People came and heard him declare the truth of God in their context, in their surroundings, in synagogues, out of synagogues, on hillsides, as he walked, as he entered cities. Jesus was preaching and he had a message Jesus had a message, and the message is the gospel of God, saying the kingdom of God is here. Repent and believe in the gospel. That's two times the word gospel is used. What does gospel mean? Good news, right? It's the Greek word euangelion, and this is not a Bible word, gospel. Gospel was a secular word. There's an inscription uh, that was found in archaeological sites called the the Euangelion of Caesar, right? This was announcing the birth of Caesar in 9 BC, uh, a Caesar, and he's called the, the Savior and the God of the world. There were all these inscriptions in places for 200 years of the use of this word Euangelion, and it was a royal giving of news, The beautiful thing here is that Jesus comes to give news. Uh, Jesus doesn't come to give advice. Jesus doesn't come to tell you uh, moral behaviors that you can live. Jesus doesn't come and say, this is how you ought to live. Have you ever sat and listened to somebody uh, fill you with shoulds and should nots and oughts and ought nots uh, to tell you this is what you're supposed to be doing? 
And you kind of walk away with there with a, a heavy feeling, a burden on your shoulders that you're not doing enough and that you should do more. And, and, and Jesus didn't come saying that. Jesus didn't come to give advice or to help us be good people or help us to kind of have health and wealth and prosperity. None of those things are true about what Jesus came preaching. Jesus came preaching news, declaring news. And the news He gave is that redemption is possible. Redemption is possible. He gave the news that our treasonous rebellion against God can be forgiven. I was with a small group of guys in a Bible study this week, and we began to explore uh, the original sin in Genesis when uh, Adam and Eve took from the garden and they ate the fruit. And as we begin to talk about that, uh, a common question I hear is, why did God flip out over just eating fruit, right? It seems like such a small act that would trigger all the evils in the world that we see, right? That eating this fruit would produce a Hitler, right? In a few centuries and millennia. That all the evils that we can point to in the world originally started with them eating fruit. But it's not the act that was the, the, the treasonous act. It was the motive behind it, right? The, Satan came to them and he said, uh, he said that if you eat this, you will be like God. So rather than living under the submissive, yielded rule in harmony with God in the Garden of Eden, you can be your own God. You don't need Him and you don't need the boundaries, the healthy boundaries that He's set up for your life. You can have your own God-likeness if you just eat this fruit. And so it was in doing that that they committed treason. They committed treason. When we think about people in our country that commit treason, something within us um, rises up, an anger that says they have, they have uh, you know, rebelled against us and, and given our enemies uh, our secrets and they have uh, committed treason against us. And it's an extremely punishable crime. In the same way, we as offspring of Adam and Eve are guilty of that treason. It wasn't just eating fruit. It was a crime of treason. And because of that, we became enemies of God. Paul wrote to the Corinthians that, that we are his enemies. And you say, well, I don't hate Jesus. I love Jesus. I'm not an enemy of God. But if you're outside of Christ, you're still in your treasonous sin. You're still on the wrong side. And there is no sort of Switzerland in this battle. There's no middle ground. It is you are either in Christ or you're out you are either still experiencing the punishment that will come from that treason and the great judgment that will happen in the end times, or you are in Christ, in the ark, in the fish, right? All these great pictures of what it means to be safe in Christ. Jesus came declaring a treaty mercy is available, grace is coming. The kingdom of God is at hand. I am the messenger of the king and he has sent me to tell you that you can be forgiven of treason. And he says, I am the way for that treason to be forgiven. We have a substitute. Someone who is worthy to take your place and take the punishment on you. Last week when we baptized one of the Evans kids, as I was interviewing Ashlyn, and I started to talk about substitute and started to talk about sin and punishment and just reviewing those things with her. I said, do you understand substitute? She said, oh yeah. 
Yeah, one time I got in such bad trouble. I can't remember what she did. I got in such bad trouble that my mom threatened to punish me. And, uh, and I was about to be punished. And London said, I'll, I'll take her punishment for her. And London steps in and, and Ariel was so touched that she didn't even punish you know, anybody. It was just such a touching moment. But Ashlyn understood what it meant to be worthy, deserving of punishment, guilty, but also to be uh, experiencing the grace of someone who loved her enough to step in and take the punishment that she deserved. That's the news that Jesus came to declare. In 2 Corinthians 5, 14-21, a long passage. You don't have to turn there, but I'll just read it for you. But 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14-21 through says, For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And He died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for Him who for their sake died and was raised. You see in that the commitment to discipleship, the call to die. Verse 16, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Listen to this. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. Trespasses is just another word for sin. And he has entrusted to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors. We're not ambassadors for our flesh to talk about how great it is to be in Christ that all of our sins are forgiven and we can just go and live however we want. We're ambassadors of reconciliation to declare the news that our sins are forgiven indeed, but they're forgiven as we are dead to our sins and in Christ and following Him. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the euangelion. This was Jesus' sermon. Jesus preached repent, And believe the kingdom of God is at hand. And he preached it often. This passage gives us insight into the primary teaching of Jesus. It was repent of your sins. Repent is just a Bible word that means turn around. You were going toward the enemy. Walking with the enemy. Walking on the other side. But now the treaty has been offered. Mercy has been granted. A substitute is here. Turn away from walking in that direction and now walk with me in this full commitment that he told his disciples. Let's look back at 12 and 13 because we see Jesus preparing for this ministry of disciple making and this ministry of proclaiming the gospel. In verse 12, it says, The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. This is an interesting passage in the way Jesus begins his ministry. And it has a lot to do with the timing and the way in which God prepares people for ministry and for following him. And so let's let's learn from this as we uh, as we 
sort of wrap up this message. He has just been baptized, and at his baptism, which we talked about a few weeks ago in the previous passage, at his baptism, the Spirit descends on him like a dove. The only place the Spirit descends like a dove is in the Targums, which is the Aramaic translation of the Jewish Scriptures from Genesis 1. It says the Spirit of God hovered above the waters like a dove in creation. That God spoke, there's the Word, there's God, and there's the Spirit floating above the waters like a dove. And so this is um, this Trinitarian passage that goes back to the Genesis 1 Trinitarian idea. Jesus is baptized with this great... Um, affirmation from God the Father from, uh, with Jesus the Son and the Spirit descending on Him like a dove. In this moment, we get a peek into the eternal relationship of one God existing in three persons. Right? And we don't really get that, but that's what we see in this passage. Then we see Jesus immediately, instantly being filled with and um, obeying, being in step with the Spirit. And just hang on with me, because in Philippians 2, we read that Jesus set aside His deity and He became a person. That means that Jesus um, took on a human nature. And in taking on a human nature, He didn't rely on His God nature as a human. So where you see Colossians, He holds everything in His hands. Uh, so you think about infant Jesus <clears throat> holding the entire universe in His hands, and all things are being held together in Him, we can't grasp how Jesus was able to maintain fully His Godness while also taking on human nature. But we know that Jesus in His humanity didn't rely on His God nature. You think, well, well, Jesus automatically knew everything about everybody. Well, in His God nature, yes, but in His humanity, He didn't take advantage of that knowledge. He walked using the same resources that you, Christ follower, have available to you. He memorized the first five books of, of, of the passage before he was 12 of, of the Bible, the Torah. He learned obedience, Scripture says. How does Jesus in his God nature learn obedience? He doesn't. In his human nature, he does. Uh, Luke 2 and 3. Jesus was obedient to his parents. Jesus uh, was a member of a family with brothers and sisters, Right? who would always try to blame Jesus maybe for something. And, and his mother would say, of course Jesus didn't do that. But it wasn't because he had a God nature, it was because he never sinned, right? But he walked with God using the same resources that you have available to you. The Holy Spirit, the Counselor, the Helper, the Word of God, prayer, relationship with God the Father. He modeled that for us. So instantly, Jesus is thrust out into the wilderness at the beginning of his public ministry, and we have insight into what that wilderness experience looked like. He fasted for 40 days. Anybody ever done a 40-day fast in here? My hand's not up because I did it. I'm just asking if anybody else did it. Um, fasting is an incredible discipline. But if you've ever not eaten for a day or two, man, you get cranky. Bad things start to happen. You start to feel different. You start to... Uh, experience all these different things. Jesus fasted for 40 days. And, and not just that, but there were wild animals all around. And I don't understand the wild animal part, maybe other than a couple of things. Um, if you're a hunter and you haven't eaten in 38 days and you see wild animals, right? You probably get, a, you, you may be thinking this is dinner, right? Uh, but also there's a danger element there. We see angels ministering to him and we see that his tour guide through the wilderness is Satan himself. What if you bumped into this caravan 
in the wilderness. What would you think? There there are three parties here who were not originated on planet Earth. Here we have Jesus in his humanity, but Jesus in his deity, Jesus himself, God the, the Son. We have angels created, right? Not a part of original creation. We have Satan, a fallen angel. What uh, interesting view this would have been. <clears throat> what was happening in this period? Jesus was preparing uh, in this ministry to walk in full submission and step with the Spirit and enduring temptation. We know that for 40 days, Satan was tempting him. And in all these ways, Jesus was able to give a word of defense from Scripture at every temptation level. You say, what's the value in memorizing Scripture? When you think about Psalm 119, 9 and 11. I've hidden your word in my heart that I what? That I might not sin against you. You know, your greatest defense against temptation is abiding, memorizing, meditating, studying, and dwelling within the Word of God. In Deuteronomy 8, he said, I sent you out, I fed you with manna so that you would learn that man does not live by what? By bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Listen, Christ follower, if you're deficient in your spiritual intake of the word of God, there's no wonder you're struggling with temptation. There's no wonder that you're fighting and failing. It takes a daily diet. And the more you um, feed yourself on the word of God, the less you sin. And the more you sin, the less you feed yourself on a diet of God's word. Oftentimes we expect instant sort of growth and we fail to realize that it's just precept upon precept from one degree of glory to another uh, that we are experiencing growth. And sometimes it's verse by verse, day by day, chapter by chapter, paragraph by paragraph. We see Jesus learning to walk in complete submission and in step with the Word of God under the direction of the Holy Spirit yielding his life at every step. Well, when I began in ministry uh, years ago, I wanted to go and make an instant impact. I was so eager. I was so on fire. I really wanted to uh, have this uh, dramatic effect in the kingdom. And, and I just admit in, in hindsight that I was selfishly, sinfully ambitious. The things I wished on myself, I didn't pray for other people. <laughs> I wasn't asking God to bless other guys in my ministry classes to make them um, ministry effective and, and impactful. Uh, I see it now as, as negative. And, and so in a lot of ways, uh, I struggled with the whole period of preparation in Bible school. I don't know that I could have gone 40 days in a wilderness with just the word and the spirit and temptation. Um, and there was a time in my life when I almost left Bible school uh, to enroll in a secular school because I just thought, there were, hey, why am I wasting all this time learning Scripture? And it sounds stupid now, right? Wasting all this time in this Bible class when I could be reaching lost people at a state school or a secular school. And I was stopped uh, when Ecclesiastes 10.10, I read it and it says, uh, if the axe is dull, more strength is needed. Uh, but with skill comes success. The axe is dull and its edge unsharpened. More strength is needed, but with skill comes success. What does that mean? It means if you have a dull axe, you have to swing much harder to drop a tree. I've never dropped a tree. I don't know axe metaphors, but I understand the concept that, that here's Bible school is a tool sharpening me. 
teaching me how to handle the Word, teaching me hermeneutics, how not to misapply Scripture, but what does it mean for the author's intent to its original audience in context so that I don't shamefully, criminally sometimes lift a passage out of context and just willy-nilly apply it to every context I want. How to rightly divide the Word of God and to apply it to the right situations and how to understand when somebody is misapplying Scripture for their own purposes. How to, how to understand that Jeremiah 29, 11, though it says, I know the plans I have for you and they're good plans, it was spoken by Jeremiah to people going into the beginning of exile for 70 years. Do you remember the story of Esther? Genocide and mass you know, slavery and all these terrible... If that's not a misapplication of Jeremiah 29, 11, that these are good plans for you, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, that's not a verse that you put on your coffee cup so that God will give you an increase in your paycheck. It's a call that there is a future restorer and hope for redemption coming. It's not a personal mantra that you're going to have a, a better vacation next year or a more comfortable life. It was the hope held out that, that a Redeemer was coming. And those are the good plans that God has. So Bible school was good because I needed training and character development because there were a lot of failures along the way. There were a lot of places where bad character, bad decisions, uh, freely giving into temptation when I shouldn't, those things came in. And so... I think about Jesus' preparation for ministry. 40 days of fasting and temptation, walking in step with the Spirit to prepare Him for, at this point, which might have been a two and a half to three year ministry before He was crucified. How are you with God's timing and His preparation in your life? Are you eager for Him to do more than he's promised quicker than he wants. God is more concerned with what you're becoming, not with what you're doing in the kingdom. And if it takes him 40 more years to build within you trustworthy character, if it takes him 40 more years for you to become not divisive, not a gossip, not malicious, in, in giving themselves over to the flesh, God is more concerned with what you're becoming in secret than He is in what you're doing publicly. And He will take all the time necessary for you to become a sharp and useful tool in His hands. He doesn't operate on our timetable and He doesn't follow our schedules. Every experience, every failure, every success, every moment of discipline, every time you go off to a secret place to pray or to fast, every meal you skip, Every denial of pleasure, every trial, it's all sandpaper and chisels and fire. It's a refining process. Jesus modeled that, not that he needed that, but he showed that before any great ministry work, there is a time of wilderness wandering. You might find yourself there today. You might find yourself taking care of kids when you really want to be on the mission field. You might find yourself in an office learning how to stay until the last minute and not clock out early. You might find yourself um, 
in secret having to clean toilets and sweep floors and with all integrity say, I did the job completely before God will ever say, I've seen you work in small ways. Now I'm ready to give you greater ministry influence. Are you patient or impatient with God's process of sanctification in your life? Because we often want God to work and move and do instant cool stuff for us. But we often neglect the powerful changes that can take place in our lives over a five-year period with a steady diet of fellowship and the Word and prayer and just showing up in faithfulness. You know, a five-year miracle and a one-moment miracle are all miracles. (laughs) You think about Mark 5, the woman who had an issue of bleeding. Her moment when she touched the hem of Jesus' garment and he felt power go out. He said, who touched me? What does his disciples say? Jesus, you're crazy. There's people everywhere. They're all touching you. What do you mean, who touched me? And he said, no, somebody touched me. And and he turns around and there's a woman. And she said, "I, I just... I've struggled with this, and I knew that if I touched you, that you could heal me instantly. But it also said that she struggled for 13 years. Her instant miracle took 13 years. She spent all she had, verse 26 said, she went to see and suffered under many physicians. And the end state of verse 26 is she was no better, but she rather grew worse. Listen, God's timetable is different. Sometimes we want to see an instant miracle, but we don't want to wait for 12 years for that instant miracle. Uh, A few years ago, I spoke at a youth camp. We sang the song we sang earlier. And uh, always, right? Oh my God, He will not delay. My God, you know, He'll be there always. Great song, but I instantly was preaching from the passage where Jesus goes and heals Lazarus or goes and raises Lazarus from the dead. And the very first verse I read said, when Jesus heard the news of Lazarus, he delayed. (laughs) Every time I hear that song, I'm singing, oh my God, he will not delay except for that time with Lazarus. (laughs) Sometimes he delays, right? He could have taken Moses and the Israelites straight to the promised land. They wandered through the wilderness for 40 years. God's timing is different than ours. And His process, His commitment to you and to your Christ-likeness and sanctification process, He's willing to take all the time it takes because Philippians 1 says, He who, what, began a good work in you will what? He's going to finish it. He's going to perfect it. You just walk by faith, fully committed. Well, Lord Jesus, we thank you for uh, your life and for your ministry. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the way in which we can hear from you today. I pray that today you've spoken to somebody. Maybe they're weary of where they are in their process of discipleship. Maybe they're struggling with a trial. Maybe they're struggling with setbacks, as, as I've have many times. Maybe they are struggling with the timetable uh, of this process. Maybe for others in the room, they realize they've never really fully committed themselves. They're like uh, fishermen on a boat that when you say, follow me, they say, I will, but then they stay in the boat. Maybe out of fear, maybe out of what it means to truly follow you and push all the chips into the table and say, I'm all in, Jesus. I'm willing to give everything and forsake everything else to follow you. 
I pray that some in the room would make that full and final commitment today. That in their heart they would say, Jesus, I acknowledge that you are Lord of my life. And I don't just give that as lip service, but I'm willing to bend the knee and yield control of my life to you. Lord, wherever we are in this discipleship process, whether the beginning or at the end of our days, I pray that we would be faithful, that we would finish the race, that we would fight the good fight, and that we might be found in you at the end. In Jesus' name, amen.